2: For many people today, the name the French Riviera most immediately conjures up one of two images. For the film fans and the starstruck, it's the images flashed across the press and social media of the annual Cannes Film Festival, with international stars wearing their designer finest blinking in the intense sun and dodging camera flashes as they appear on the red carpet or are interviewed outside the famous Palais des Festivals, its vast glass windows reflecting the golden Mediterranean sun. For others, also movie fans, the image of the French Riviera is perhaps more nostalgic. The name can take one back to that period of glamour in the 1950s, and most specifically to images of the 26-year-old Grace Kelly wearing the stunning fashions of Edith Head, playing opposite Cary Grant in the Hitchcock classic To Catch a Thief, which premiered on the screen in 1955. The movie was, of course, set along the Riviera, and actual filming locations included Cannes and Nice. What makes this film all the more romantic is that we know that Grace, not long before the film's theatrical release, would meet the dashing, titled, and wealthy Prince Rainier of Monaco, and would be on her way to joining one of Europe's oldest and most aristocratic titled families as Princess Herself. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. The Riviera is the name known to most Americans and the British, but the French call it the Côte d'Azur, referring to the extraordinary deep blue of the water. Calling it the Côte d'Azur in the true French spirit reflects perhaps as much a state of mind as an actual place. The Riviera perhaps reached its height as a playground for the royals, the rich, and the rascals in the late 19th century and meandered through the years of the 20th century up to World War I, the same period that roughly corresponded to America's Gilded Age and France's Belle Époque, only to rise again as a haven for, as Fitzgerald said, the beautiful and damned in the Jazz Age and into the 1930s. Crowned heads of Europe in the Belle Époque particularly favored this stretch of coastline in southern France as a healthier place in the winter than the drafty castles on the Rhine and damp country estates in Yorkshire. The society-obsessed Americans, filled to their Gilded Age hat-brims with new wealth, went in search of royal and aristocratic connections as they swarmed to the Riviera to wander about among the potted palms, sweeping marble foyers, wrought iron balconies, and grand promenades trying to catch a titled husband for one's daughter. Anyone who was anyone showed up at one time or another— Artists Picasso, Monet, and Matisse; composers Berlioz and Meyerbeer; writers Stendhal, Goethe, Rudyard Kipling, James Joyce, as well as Marcel Proust, Colette, Louisa May Alcott, Oscar Wilde, and Edith Wharton either paid a visit themselves or used the Riviera somewhere in their fiction. If you ask anyone, likely past or present, just what draws them to the Riviera they may not be able to give you a concrete answer. It's a place of incredible beauty, of light and land, and extremely agreeable weather. Vintage postcards you can still buy today proudly proclaim Le soleil toute l'année. Most of those who have visited over the past 200 years can, I think, agree on that. But it seems to be something more. There is a restorative quality here, and we'll see how the Riviera served to heal illness, sadness, and personal tragedy amidst the popping champagne corks, the lilting strains of ball music, and the spins of the roulette wheel in another round of life's games of chance. So many historians have opinions and ideas of just who was the most fascinating, famous, or fraudulent, of this cast of characters that populated the Riviera in those glittering years before the war sobered everyone up. For this show, I offer you my own particular selection of those who clearly understood that indescribable and even imperceptible quality that is the Riviera, and most importantly, if we know where to look, how we can still see what they left us today. My lens will focus on stories that include an intrepid 18th century Scottish traveler and writer who perhaps first put the Riviera on the map, a waylaid British lord who, out of chance and necessity, helped establish the city of Cannes, and a mysterious but very famous woman traveling incognito under the pseudonym the Countess of Balmoral, and you can probably guess who that is. I've also included a lesser-known story of a passionate Jewish-French socialite from the famous Rothschild family, who in order to regroup following a disastrous marriage built a world combining the beauties of nature with her own extraordinary collection of art. And yes, I will end with the story of a thief with a curious and most mysterious tale to tell. For this episode, do sit back, perhaps pour an absinthe cocktail or a nice coupe of champagne, don the widest brimmed hat you have, and join me for a journey back to a very gilded age as we go roaming on the Riviera. The waiter had just placed the perfectly white low soup bowl in front of me. With great solemnity and ceremony, he leaned forward and slowly allowed the velvety, saffron-colored liquid to fall from his small metal pitcher into the bowl. As the soup swirled around in the bowl, rising to the rim, its essence rose and I could smell the combination of fresh herbe de Provence, the pungent, crushed garlic, and hints of orange and anchovy. There is a sensuality here in almost everything, and most certainly in the food— A simplicity, yes, but also a sensuality. Any great meal is about more than just beautifully prepared food, and this one was indeed a special meal savored with special friends on a terrace on the Riviera. It was mid-afternoon, a bit late for lunch, but on the Riviera, time just doesn't matter very much. As the sun began to move past the palms shading the terrace, the aroma of the salt air lingered and rose up from the rocks below. To my right, as I looked up, was the deep blue of that sea, darkening in the receding afternoon light. To my left, in the distance, I could see the high cliffs that line the riviera that hold the famed corniche, the treacherous driving routes with hairpin turns and narrow passes that connect the coastal towns. This terrace where I sat spread out to the sea from a simple though grand in scale villa. It was just the perfect place to enjoy food, friends, and a perfect spot. The great French engineer Gustave Eiffel, who built his famous Paris tower, well, he thought so too. This villa from the Belle Epoque and now accompanying modern guest house was his summer villa, in Beaulieu, just about six miles from Nice, in the heart of the Riviera. But just next door to the Eiffel Villa was the most curious of villas that attracted my attention. Sitting majestically out on its own point of land was another villa built during the Belle Epoque, but not at all the filigreed, ornate Belle Epoque style. It was something else entirely. It was designed as if it were something out of ancient Greek antiquity. A purely white villa with terraces, a seemingly perfect reconstruction of a home from the ancient world. A curiosity for sure, but it still worked with the landscape and that sea. And that is a part of the elusive quality of the Riviera. It was, and perhaps still is, a place for the eccentric, the unexpected, the seemingly out of place, or at least a place for some things and some people that would be out of place anywhere else. And we'll come back to this, this odd Greek villa. It will help propel part of our story. No one seems to agree on the exact geographical boundaries of the Riviera, and that's just one of the things that contributes to its undefinable allure. Most travelers and writers agree that it vaguely begins around Toulon. It runs along the coast through Saint-Tropez and Cannes and Nice, including the principality of Monaco, and straight up to today's Italian border, somewhere around 125 total miles. The name Riviera is actually derived from the Italian, and it was the Italians who oversaw much of this land until the mid 19th century. The French name, the Côte d'Azur, was first given by the 19th century writer Stephen Legard in 1887. One of my favorite books has as its subtitle, quote, Inventing the Riviera. Unquote. And I find that apt. Aside from its true natural beauty, this is an invented place, buildings, vegetation, and people that have combined in sometimes unlikely and unexpected ways to form something entirely new, a place like a blank artist's canvas before adding the color in the form of the socialites and the railroads to create its art. It's been written that illusion has been the chief industry of the Riviera. The Greeks found it around 350 B.C. and established trading colonies. The main city of Nice was called Nikaia after the goddess of victory. Nice, the city of victory. The Romans found the city to their liking around the 1st century A.D. and created a settlement further beyond the seaport in the hills just above today's modern city. This area is known as Simiae which became a center for some of the Belle Epoque's grandest hotels and still has the remains of the amphitheater and the baths of the Roman colony. The particular area surrounding Nice was, until really the mid-19th century, extremely hard to get to. The coast was rocky, the roads were limited to old Roman thoroughfares, the sea route ran the dangers of pirates, and they were challenging rivers to cross. It was the hardy Scots and the English that were among the earliest travelers to visit what was to become the Riviera. Many historical accounts credit the first character in our story with raising the visibility of the Riviera around Nice and beginning what was to launch the onslaught of the British nobility, which continued throughout most of the 19th century. Tobias Smollett, born in 1721, was a good Scotsman a playwright, a novelist, and a surgeon, just for good measure. Smollett very much enjoyed France, where he drew a great deal of material for his writing. In 1763, however, ill with tuberculosis, he sought what was, through most of the 19th century into the 20th century, the only known and recommended treatment, a better environment. Making the trek down through France, Smollett ended up in Nice where he spent the winter of 1764 after a peek at the Italian cities across the border which included Genoa and as far down as Rome. Nice in the mid-18th century indeed had a few English as well as French travelers floating around. Smollett's travels bore fruit in his book, Travels in France and Italy, which became considered by many to be the first significant writing about the area to reach the British consciousness. Just to give you an idea of what this involved, Smollett's trek to Nice from England took 15 days, and that is only from the French port of Calais. It required 80 stops and way stations to refresh himself and his horses. Smollett could be a critical and cranky writer complaining about the locals, but he did offer a positive review of the climate. It seemed to do him good, after all. Upon returning to England and publishing his work, it had the effect of offering the place as beneficial for those convalescing from illness, as well as an alternative to the damp, grey, uncomfortable English winter. Soon afterwards, members of the nobility began to make the trek, including several dukes. The word was out. History suggests at this point that Nice had not yet become what we call today a destination spot. It was very much considered to be a place on the way to somewhere else. Apparently, just a couple of years before Smollett's descent... Casanova passed through Nice and had been held up there due to inclement weather on his way to Genoa. In the latter 18th century, fueled by the influence of the Enlightenment, young British men were crossing the channel to the continent to make a grand tour, touring the great cities and visiting bits of architectural wreckage in an attempt to absorb ancient civilizations. Some made it down to Nice and, inspecting the ruins, found an industrious, locally thriving business of selling bits from the old Roman ruins, perhaps, as it's been suggested, the very beginning of the Riviera souvenir trade. The effects of the French Revolution did little to bolster these early attempts at tourism and the Napoleonic Wars were no help either. In those early years of the 19th century, the Riviera was just not a place that many people wanted to go on purpose. In 1834, it was again a desire to cure disease that led to further discovery and perhaps one could say a rediscovery of the Riviera. Lord Henry Peter Brougham, another Scotsman and at the time, one of Britain's most noteworthy politicians was the next to effectively put the Riviera on the map among British elites. The name Brougham may sound familiar to some, referring to that new invention of a more efficient carriage pulled by a single horse instead of up to six. In addition to all his other endeavors, it was actually Lord Brougham himself who had invented it, and that's how his name survives for many today. But Lord Brougham's accomplishments went far beyond that. As a member of parliament, he was responsible for a number of progressive movements for the time, notably championing measures to abolish the slave trade. Traveling with his ill daughter Eleanor Louise, Brougham's plans were to escort her to Italy where she could perhaps recover from, again, what was tuberculosis known at the time as consumption. An outbreak of cholera in Nice stopped them in their tracks, and just before they approached the city, they were informed of a strict quarantine in place that would prevent them from progressing any further. With no recourse, Brome and his daughter backtracked to stay in what was at that point a fishing village settled by monks in the 11th century. Brome was enchanted by this port, writing to a friend, In this enchanted atmosphere, it is a delight for me who loves dreams to forget for a few moments the ugliness and miseries of life. He decided to stay, and his first attempt was to rent a villa where Napoleon had stayed. However, in a burst of national spirit, the French refused to rent it to an Englishman. Undaunted, he bought a tract of land overlooking the sea and a very grand villa he built and named for his daughter, Eleanor Louise. The grand mansion with columns, balconies and porches surrounding it and looking like something just picked up and transported from Wiltshire became his winter home. Lord Brougham became a magnet for warmth-seeking British nobles, and given his connections back in the damp homeland, others became enchanted with his descriptions of the location and the area. Like Tobias Smollett, Lord Brougham's PR campaign for the Riviera took hold. Determined to upgrade conditions, Brome dove into improving local infrastructures and to overseeing improvements like roads, which ranged from the treacherous to the non-existent. That fishing village that first enchanted him grew rapidly as the growing British community took hold and provided work for entrepreneurs and locals. That fishing village prospered and grew to the city that we know today as Cannes. Once you know this, the influence of Brougham and his passion can be found all over Khan today. His extravagant, columned villa still stands, now in private ownership. Brome spent the last 30 years of his life in his villa named for his beloved daughter, who sadly succumbed to her illness. His tomb can be found among the graves in a Khan cemetery, and a statue of him stands in the city center overlooking the sea. And with that, I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be back to continue the story.
3: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or.
2: And I'm back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. With the British, French, and Russians, along with some Americans, all making their way to the Riviera to enjoy the temperate winter weather, it still wasn't the easiest place to get to. It required a rather complex and arduous journey in which only the truly wealthy could afford to indulge. The great game-changer arrived by mid-century, and it wasn't people. It was the large, loud, huffing and puffing black iron engines of the railway that, just past the midway mark in the century, had finally made their way to the south. The Great French Rail Line now connected these growing resorts and towns along the Riviera and connected it to Paris, London, and other European cities. The rail arrived in Marseille in 1855, Cannes in 1860, and finally, in Nice in 1864. As October 18th, 1864 dawned in Nice, there was a tangible excitement and crowds gathered at the Gare, the new central rail station. The first new train from Paris was about to arrive. Three days following the first train, Tsar Alexander II arrived on his special train. Napoleon III, Emperor of France, was next, and Leopold, King of the Belgians, all arrived in quick succession. These royals, among others, did not hesitate to show up for the action and the publicity. The rail trip from Paris now took only 23 hours as opposed to nearly two weeks. It's been written that so much travel writing before the introduction of the rail lines was centered on just how uncomfortable, dangerous, and time-consuming getting anywhere really was. Now, with this advancement, historians have noted that writers could write about the actual charms of Nice itself. The year following the railroad's opening saw 100,000 people climbing down from engines, piling luggage onto waiting porters. By 1874, that had tripled to 300,000. This was really a revelation. In the old days, just to go from Nice to Marseille could take 30 hours in a coach— at a distance of a little over 100 miles. And in 1860, this area of the Riviera, which had actually been Italian for so much of its history and held by the House of Savoy, finally became part of France. Napoleon III wanted it that way. A second development led to the reputation of the Côte d'Azur, and particularly Nice, as a place to see and be seen, or help let the royalty see you. Nice had long planned to develop a long walkway along the seafront beginning in the 1820s. Along with providing work for the local population, it provided the rapidly growing community of elites with a place to walk, take the air, and see each other. 19th century Europe, particularly Paris and London, had reconfigured their street plans to create boulevards and large open spaces where the newly rising industrious populations could show themselves off the party, quite literally and on purpose, now spilled out into the streets. Nice's great effort to create a public stage set was called, due to the overflow of English visitors, the Promenade des Anglais, the walkway of the English. This approximately four-mile strip, it could be said, contributed heavily to the notion that here one could really be, well, whoever one wanted to be, One was far enough away from London, Paris, and New York, after all. Even the great palm trees that lined the promenade weren't native to the region. They were brought in to create a look. But as we know, at times, things can be seldom what they seem. Given its relatively remote location, the Riviera could be a really great place to hide out. While still very French in character, the influence of the English could be found all over Nice. Street and hotel names were English this, Grand bretagne that, and, of course, no opportunity was missed to name anything a hotel, a public space, or a culinary dish after Queen Victoria. It's been reported that, at this point, Nice had become the largest English community on the continent. Among all the visitors... There was one who perhaps solidified not only the English community by her visits, but that of many of Europe's other royals as well, mostly because many of them were related to her. Britain's Queen Victoria, some would say the most powerful ruler in the world throughout much of the 19th century, first came to the Riviera in the spring of 1882. She was 62 years old and had been widowed for over 20 years. Following her beloved husband Prince Albert's sudden death in 1861, she went into deep mourning from which she never quite emerged. In her older years, there were some significant moments of serious family illness and mourning in the Queen's life quite apart from that of her beloved partner. At a time with untreatable disease, including bacterial and viral infections, the possibility of death was ever present. Indeed, the queen, as did many, lost members of her family and those in the royal circle quite unexpectedly throughout the rest of her life. It was indeed illness that brought the queen to the Riviera that first time. Not hers. But her son, Prince Leopold, who was a hemophiliac, and the beneficial climate of the South had been recommended for his health. Often with diseases like tuberculosis, known then as consumption, in a world without antibiotics, the best the medical world could do was to offer a change of scenery and a temperate climate. As a result, as the word got out among Britain's upper classes, the areas around Nice and Cannes became sought after as a healthful and hopeful change to the ever-present rising damp of Britain. The Queen's first stay that spring of 1882 was in Menton, then as now the largest town of note before one hits the Italian border. The queen immediately took to the region, feeling it beneficial not only for Leopold, but for herself. For one whose empire now included India, Victoria had traveled relatively little at all, and up to this point in 1882, she had not traveled much outside of Britain. Moving a queen in any century, much less a queen like Victoria in the 19th century, was a significant undertaking, and despite improved travel conditions now with the rail lines, it was a complex maneuver. And let's just sum it up to say, Victoria didn't travel light. Refusing to cross the channel on Fridays due to caution and superstition, Victoria oversaw every detail of her transportation south. The royal entourage included seven rail coaches, including two special cars designed specifically for her, with a silk-lined drawing room filled with Louis XVI-style furniture, a bedroom, dressing room, and maid's room. On the car, which contained her bedroom, the brakes were removed in order to ensure a restful sleep uninterrupted by any sudden movement or jerking during the journey. She had her own food packed at Windsor and brought along for the ride. Curiously, in order to, in theory, attract as little attention as possible, she traveled under the made-up name of the Countess of Balmoral, despite the fact that her luggage was all stamped Queen of England. It's hard to imagine just how incognito a short, stout, white-haired woman clad constantly in black with a seven-car entourage could pass unnoticed. But that we leave to history. With Queen Victoria's arrival on the Riviera, the switch flipped to give it her approval and resulting celebrity status and thus encourage a nearly uninterrupted flow of royal visits from all over the continent. Let's remember that Queen Victoria has been called the Grandmother of Europe due to the fact that almost all of her nine children married into a number of Europe's royal houses. And with Victoria now relatively nearby, it would have been just rude not to visit. Indeed, her cousin, King Leopold of the Belgians, decided to stay, building his own villa, you know, just around the bend. Europe's social circles were all buzzing about the rapidly growing spa resort of Monte Carlo, less than 10 miles from Menton. One afternoon, the queen summoned her carriage to take her on a tour to inspect this increasingly popular spa resort of divided reputation. Monte Carlo, built up on a bluff across the port from the prince's palace, was and actually is part of the Principality of Monaco, and is another example of Riviera invention. The first famous casino was opened in the 1850s, but moved and expanded in the 1870s. And again, with the improved transportation, the not insignificant funds generated by the gambling and its associated enterprises helped Monaco's struggling finances Spa resorts were all the rage of mid-19th century Europe, in theory, to get a hold of one's health. But to balance it all out, one could also have a really good time. Monte Carlo was an attempt to copy the great spas of the era, such as Germany's famous Baden-Baden. These spa resorts included some form of health cure, such as hot springs or the waters— or baths to restore one's constitution. They also included grand and expensive restaurants and boutiques full of exceptional jewels to be bought with one's winnings. Another opportunity to disperse the gold in one's purse was on the elegant and glamorous courtesans who too flocked to these spots of delight and decadence. It's been said courtesans such as the great Carolina Otero, whom we met briefly in a previous episode, and even the mysterious Mata Hari herself, appeared on the arms of escorts in the salons of Monte Carlo. Queen Victoria thought much of all of these activities surrounding the hedonistic gambling destination, they were distasteful. And she felt that they brought a disagreeable element to the social community. Indeed, her journal comments on her trot over to Monaco, and her thoughts were mixed. Monte Carlo is a very clean-looking place with many hotels and villas. The casino, with its gambling rooms, is an immense building with splendid gardens and terraces going down to the sea. One saw very nasty, disreputable-looking people walking about Monte Carlo, though many respectable people go there also for their health the harm this attractive gambling establishment does cannot be overestimated. To show her disdain for all the goings-on, the queen even declined to visit with Charles III, the then Prince of Monaco, which would have been the usual royal protocol since he was in residence nearby. The climate, location, and general esprit of the Riviera greatly pleased the queen— However, the rumored exploits of her son, Prince Albert Edward, who had also discovered the Riviera, did not. Bertie, as he was known, while waiting around to become king, had, it's kindest to say, not really much of anything to do. And being the sort that always liked a really good party, unlike his mother, he had discovered the Riviera in the early 1870s and used it as a place for rest and recreation, so to speak. When you are trying to be the partying playboy prince, it's really rough to have your mother staying just down the coast. It's been written that the queen disliked Cannes since it was the site of the, quote, immoral activities, unquote, of the prince. It's no secret that his 1863 marriage to Princess Alexandra of Denmark did nothing to curb his playboy tendencies. The story is told that one American beauty, a Miss Chamberlain from Cleveland, Ohio, on a grand tour with her parents, proved a particular obstacle when it came to spending quality private time. Supposedly, in order to see her, Bertie was forced to entertain her parents as well, at the same time. It's been noted that his wife, Princess Alexandra, nicknamed her Miss Chamberpots. Potts. It seems Bertie made the attempt of traveling incognito as well, but like his mother, one does really have to wonder just how successful this really was. His alias was Barry Renfrew. It must be noted that his very long time and thought-to-be favorite mistress Alice Keppel was presented to him at a ball in Cannes in 1898. And for you Royal Watchers, just for the record... Alice Keppel was Queen Camilla's great-great-grandmother. On her visit of 1891, Queen Victoria based herself in the hill town of Grasse, away from the sea in the hills almost due north of Cannes. Grasse is a must-visit on any modern trip to the Riviera. It's been the center of France's perfume industry since the 18th century. It was also the chosen site of another aristocratic villa, that of Alice de Rothschild, Along with the actual royals, the extensive Rothschild family formed a kind of royalty of their own. With a start in Frankfurt in the 18th century, this family with Ashkenazi Jewish origins established an extremely powerful banking dynasty, which passed through the original patriarch's five sons and resulted in family branches of extreme wealth throughout Europe. Alice de Rothschild was born in Frankfurt and descended from the Austrian as well as the English lines of the family, and had indeed spent much of her life in England since she was a young girl. She followed the trainloads of her wealthy English compatriots to the Riviera to find winter relief for her rheumatic fever, and she settled in Grasse. Grasse Feeling that the activities and the proclivities of the social circle of the more coastal towns were just a bit too loose for her taste, Alice chose to build a magnificent villa in the hills, named in fact for the queen, the Villa Victoria, and to construct a majestic garden entirely of her own vision and design. The garden included a long drive with immense beds of violets and was strategically laid out with visual horticultural delights as one traveled along its paths. Alice employed a massive army of gardeners to create and maintain her garden, and in the vein of Mrs. Astor and Alva Vanderbilt, Alice required her gardening staff to wear the Rothschild livery in the colors of blue and yellow as they performed their work. Queen Victoria's love of meandering around these sorts of gardens, many with exquisite imported plants and trees on her Riviera visits, resulted in perhaps the only moment in her adult life as queen that she got a rap on the wrist for bad behavior. With the queen in residence, it was an expected honor to invite the queen for a tour of her gardens. With supreme cordiality and pomp, the Queen's visit to the Rochelle Gardens went as planned, until Queen Victoria, in attempting to look more closely at a rare plant, trod upon an adjacent floral bed. Alice, having no tolerance for any damage to her precious flowers, and apparently no concern for any royal rank whatsoever, made it clear in words that seemed to be lost to history that the Queen should immediately get out. Which she did. Thereafter, the Queen, it is reported to have said, referred to the indomitable Alice as the all-powerful one. There is another powerful Rothschild woman that we will encounter towards the end of our story, but for now, I will take a brief break before we continue with the Riviera Rambles of Queen Victoria.
0: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What makes the Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day in Cozumel, or a tropical adventure to Mayan ruins, with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea, topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships registry, Bahamas, Panama.
2: And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and today we are taking a look at the Belle Epoque world of the French Riviera in the late 19th century and some of its most famous visitors, including Britain's Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria made nine trips to the Riviera before her last in 1899. Beginning in 1895, Queen Victoria chose to stay in Nice, specifically near that old Roman ruin in Cimiez, in the hills above the seaport, which by then had become a stylish and fashionable enclave of grand hotels. By the late years of the 1890s, the Riviera was attracting not only the rich and the royal, but since they wanted to be entertained, great musicians and stars of the stage showed up as well. In 1885, replacing a previous theater devastated by fire, Nice rebuilt its Opera House by the Sea, a charming jewel box theater designed by Charles Garnier, the architect of the great Paris Opera. Garnier was also responsible for building the Opera House in Monte Carlo as part of the casino complex, creating another intimate yet elegant showcase for opera and theater. The Garnier-designed opera house opened in Monte Carlo, and audiences in 1879 saw a performance by the great French actress, and it must be said, personality, Sarah Bernhardt. Bernhardt was another kind of royalty, to be sure, and I will tease my listeners for an upcoming show all about her. But just to note, when she arrived in Nice for a performance of several of her classic roles, she took over an entire wing of the Hotel Excelsior Regina, where the queen also herself was staying. Between these two queens and their accompanying retinues, I am just not sure how much room there was for anyone else. Queen Sarah, it seems, wanted very much to give a performance for Queen Victoria, Furthermore, the Queen's dallying son, Bertie, Prince of Wales, seems to have included the great Sarah among his paramours, and Sarah dallied with more than a few herself. Queen Victoria was indeed interested to see the acclaimed actress and finally invited the great Bernhard to perform in her hotel suite at the Excelsior Regina in Simier for a private performance in her drawing room. Attended by a group of around 30 to 40 invited guests of the Queen and on a stage hastily created with a makeshift dais and screens, Bernard performed only about 20 minutes. But Victoria notes in her journal how pleasing and how touching and full of pathos she found the great actress's brief performance to be. Upon being presented to the queen following the scene, Bernhard accepted a diamond bracelet with an image of the queen that Victoria offered her, and in return, Bernhard offered Victoria one of her own bracelets, immediately taking it off her wrist. The presence of the queen in Nice attracted many of the royal visitors from Europe. One curious couple and her most prestigious visitors in 1896 also arrived incognito for their visit with the queen. The masquerading pair was Emperor Franz Joseph I and his empress Elizabeth of Austria. Not wanting to attract attention, it seems, the emperor and his wife walked off the train amidst the crowd. They stopped to have a bite at a local patisserie along the way and then walked the one and a half miles up the hill to reach the queen's hotel at Simier. And after their visit, Walked all the way back down. The life of Empress Elizabeth, known as Sissy, contained its own tragic turns, including the tragic death of her son in the myerling incident, as well as her own dramatic assassination by an anarchist knife only two years following her visit with the Queen at Simier. But all that will be for another show. Queen Victoria's last visit to Nice and the Riviera was on her trip of 1899. It had become a place that was a true refuge for her from the physical and personal pressures of court life in England. Contemporary accounts claim that when she arrived in Nice, at moments, the dour reserved queen could take on the spirit of a 17-year-old girl. Her regular presence and constant guests brought a star quality to Nice and the Riviera that disappeared into history with the approaching war. Victoria died in 1901, and her son, the Prince of Wales, prepared or not, became Edward VII and ushered in a new era. It's been reported that in her final days, the Queen is purported to have said, If I were in Nice, I would recover. Along with the British and European royals and aristocrats, the Americans were making a fairly good show on the Promenade des Anglais and in the casinos and hotels of Nice, Cannes, and Monte Carlo. Among those Americans seeking to hobnob with the royals and the aristocrats, there was, it seems, a fair share of pure eccentrics, which added to the fizz and frivolity of the Riviera at the height of the Belle Époque. James Gordon Bennett Jr. was the publisher of the New York Herald and a pioneer in establishing European editions of the paper. An avid yachtsman with his plush craft, the Lysistrata, as well as a proponent of the first organized polo and tennis matches in America, he loved the Riviera, particularly the neighboring towns of Villefranche and Beaulieu to the east of Nice. He frequently docked his yacht in Villefranche, demanding that a red carpet be laid out along the port to preserve the cleanliness of his shoes. He is reported to have offered to buy an entire restaurant if he found it was too full to accommodate him. And in deeply eccentric behavior, it seems he was known to chew on a bit of carpet if he felt his meal was too slow in coming. As for good works, he established better roads between Beaulieu and Nice for improved transportation. However, it's been noted that that was really to make the trip to his favorite restaurant smoother. You see... Money can buy just about anything. Paris Singer, another wealthy American who was heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune, and while an early developer of Florida's Palm Beach, he too fell under the spell of the Riviera building his own villa there. Singer's notoriety on the Riviera was also for his generosity in charitable works, once inviting all the workers that were building his chateau to a lunch at a local restaurant to show his gratitude. Singer was noted for his passionate affair with American dancer Isadora Duncan, whose life met a sudden and tragic end years later at Nice's Negresco Hotel. Now we must return to the scene that opened this episode, the memory of my lunch on the terrace of the Villa Eiffel. As you remember, I mentioned a curious Greek-inspired villa on the neighboring property. The owner and builder, Theodore Reinach, could in theory be called another of the eccentrics that chose to settle on the Côte d'Azur in the Belle Époque. Passionate about the decorative arts and daily life of ancient Rome, Greece, and Egypt, he built his extraordinary villa as a replica of those found in the ancient and sacred Greek island community of Delos, and he outfitted it with authentic reproductions of ancient furniture, wall paintings, and decorations. The villa is open to the public today. I told you earlier that we would visit another Rothschild before our story was over. Reinach's great villa took six years to build, and in the midst of its construction, the 41-year-old Beatrice de Rothschild, Beatrice Rothschild, came to visit Beaulieu for the very first time. Beatrice was indeed from the great Rothschild family, as was Alice whom we saw earlier in our story. Béatrice was the former wife of Theodore Reinach's cousin, Maurice Efrussi. Béatrice was born in 1864 and grew up in splendor and seemingly limitless Rothschild wealth, dividing her early years between Paris and the Château de Ferrier about 20 miles east of Paris. Her father instilled the love of history and art collecting on the young Béatrice, and she grew up all around her father's collection and its treasures. On her marriage at age 19 to Maurice Efrussie, a Russian-born baron from another great banking dynasty, she and her husband began to travel extensively and amass their own collection of art and artifacts to fill their homes in Paris and Monte Carlo. A passionate lover of 18th-century style and design, Beatrice wore gowns by the great Parisian designer Doucet, which had been adapted and designed for her But Beatrice's story is one that demonstrates all too clearly that extreme wealth is not a guarantee of happiness. Maurice developed a severe gambling habit, gambling away significant amounts of the Rothschild as well as Ephrussi money. In addition, it seems that through dalliances outside the marriage, Maurice transmitted to Beatrice an illness that prevented her from ever bearing children. Alarmed by his behavior, Beatrice's Rothschild relatives stepped in to demand Marie separate from Beatrice, and the couple divorced in 1904. Upon her father's death, her subsequent inheritance allowed her to begin again. As it had been in a different way for Queen Victoria, the Riviera served as a place for healing and a chance for Beatrice to rebuild her life and reignite her passions for art. Buying a tract of land high on a bluff between Beaulieu and Villefranche and overlooking Rheinax Villa Carlos, Beatrice began her own extensive construction project, a pink Italian-style villa that perfectly blended the natural beauty of the location with her prized objects and collections of art. The villa, with walls in a rose-colored stone and verandas and great windows opening out high above the sea, was the perfect setting for her to bring together nature and art and to find her passion. She brought architectural elements and objects from throughout Europe. The villa contained a ceiling by Tiepolo. Eighteenth-century carved walls in the Great Salon came from the Hotel Crillon in Paris, A carpet that once adorned the chapel at Versailles was spread on the floor, and a gaming table that once belonged to Marie Antoinette was added to the 18th century furniture. Trains arrived in the station below and Beatrice would make the journey from her villa to inspect the various objects she had purchased deciding which should stay here in the villa and which should be placed in her other homes. As one walks through the rooms of the villa today, you can feel her presence, her unique taste, and her love of what she collected. You can see her beloved home just as she saw it. Aside from the villa, Beatrice turned her attention to creating spectacular gardens which can still be visited along with the villa today. On the bluff high above the sea, her vision was to create formal French gardens laid out in the shape of the deck of a ship, filled with rare and beautiful plants with a perspective blending into the distance. When we see it today, we see the Villa Ephrussie de Rothschild as a testament to a strong woman, passionately inspired by art, and determined to create a vision on her own terms. The construction of the villa lasted five years, and she was able to finally move in in 1912. And while she divided her time between Paris, Monaco, and Deauville in northern France, she continued to come to her villa on the Riviera for a period of ten years. In her later years, Beatrice contracted tuberculosis and spent her final years in Davos in Switzerland, where she died in 1934. Upon her death, the great villa and the gardens were left to the Institute of France, who maintains the villa and property for the public to see today. There is a passage from the poet André de Fouquier that is used in several sources describing her, and from that we get a sense of who Beatrice was. I remember well the face of Mrs. Maurice Effrussi, née de Rothschild, A face with immaculate, delicate features, framed by silver hair. She was always dressed beautifully in blue, with a ribbon of the same color, and a small fox terrier lying at her feet. Born into a limitless horizon of wealth, yet not conspicuous, except when she held her generous parties, and I remember in particular one summer night, when we had had the privilege to see in her gardens, which drew from her mansion across the sea and bathed in moonlight, Anna Pavlova dancing to the Chopin nocturnes. If you, like many, as I noted at the beginning of the show, think immediately of Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief to conjure images of the Riviera, well, let me leave you with one final and fascinating story. There have been jewel thieves and dramatic heists along the Riviera over the years, One in 2013 in Cannes, in fact, took place at the iconic Carlton Hotel, involving over 100 million worth of gemstones. The same hotel, where to catch a thief, was actually set. And not all of the thieves looked like Cary Grant. But in 1908, in the still bubbling years of the Belle Epoque, in the early hours of a March morning... Not far from the Promenade des Anglais in Nice, at the elegant Hotel Imperial, an arrest was about to be made. A jewel thief was about to strike. An elusive cat burglar and con artist that had dodged officials for years was about to be apprehended in the midst of another strike in attempting to pocket the jewels of an unsuspecting wealthy hotel guest. The Hotel Imperial was another of Nice's great and elegant Belle Epoque hotels, like those in Cimiez or the Negresco. The burglar wore all black, which is no surprise, crept quietly along the silent, thickly carpeted halls, armed with picklocks to do the deed. Again, no surprise. But perhaps what was a surprise was that this thief was a woman. She was called the Queen of Thieves and the Spider, and took on the fake persona as the Countess of Monte as she mixed in high society, stalking her next targets. Often disguised in a black veil, she would mingle in hotel lobbies, grand salons, dining rooms, and on decks of steamers where she chose her likely next targets, tracking them, making notes, and then slipping into their rooms at night to pocket what she could of their jewels. Cunning, to be sure, and always able to seemingly escape, she was, in reality, Amélie Condemine, born of modest means in a small town in the vineyards of central France. After an unsuccessful marriage, Amélie transformed herself into the secretive and baffling made-up Countess de Monte. Little is known of parts of her life, however. It does seem that she traveled to America— and spent some time among New York's elite. Let's just hope that Mrs. Astor carefully checked her guest lists. Perhaps what is curious is that current articles on this real-life Riviera cat burglar note that following her arrest, the press focused on her strength, resolve, and courage, despite her clearly illegal methods. It's been noted she was depicted in some accounts as an odd sort of heroine, not as a villain, in relieving these moneyed guests of some of their perhaps excessive wealth. Amélie never confessed to her crimes at her trial, and she was convicted and sent to prison from which she was released in 1918. Her life following her release is as enigmatic and elusive as was her persona as the countess. Nothing is known of her life after that. She simply disappeared. It's been reported that Nice's great imperial hotel, the scene of Amélie's last attempted heist and subsequent arrest, remains today and can be found on the streets of Nice as a public high school. I'm sure that it's clear that there was a tremendous cast of characters that populated the Riviera during the years of the Belle Epoque, and we've only had time to look at a few today. Not everyone, as we have just seen, was exactly who they said they were. And in the often-quoted words of Somerset Maugham, the Riviera was a sunny place for shady people. But some, and perhaps many, were looking for a new identity with the most sincere of intentions, leaving a grim, gray existence behind for the sun, the stones, and the sea of this little part of the world. World War I left its mark on the Riviera, The royals left as their countries became divided, and for a time, the party stopped. In the 1920s and 1930s, fueled by a new set of bright young things, including, of course, F. Scott and Zelda, and another cast of artists and writers, they all showed up on the beach. Unlike during the Belle Epoque, summer became the most desirable season, it's said that Coco Chanel made sunbathing famous by sporting a Riviera tan on the streets of Paris in the early 1920s. The Cannes Film Festival began in 1946, and as I noted at the top of the show, the Riviera got a gloss of Hollywood in the silver screen. But perhaps one really can consider the heyday of the Riviera, those Gilded Age and Belle Époque years of the very late 19th and early 20th century. You can still find some feeling of it today. Many street and place names refer back to the early British influence. Much of the great architecture bears the style of the great French Art Nouveau. The Negresco is alive and well and inviting you in for a coupe of champagne. Champagne or just attend a performance at the Garnier-designed Opéra de Nice. Nothing has really changed. And I encourage you not to miss a visit to the great villa and gardens of Beatrice and de Rothschild. It's always seemed to me that to really imagine that world of the Belle Epoque, if you could just peer over the wall into that garden of the Rothschild villa, on a calm, starry summer night. And if you looked and listened very carefully, I think you could still hear the faint strains of a Chopin nocturne and see a ghostly image of the great Anna Pavlova still dancing in the moonlight. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Karen Gannon. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps with the cost of research and production to continue to be able to do the show. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold?